within a bleak and dismal swamp, hidden beneath its murky waters, lies the headquarters of the most sinister villains of all time. The Legion of Doom. Last night, Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast uh, suggested that since I've been struggling to find anything to podcast about, it's July 28th today, June 28th is the last time I tried to record anything, uh, that I, I hunt down a copy of Beastmaster and watch that and give my thoughts on it. Strangely enough, Beastmaster is a film I never saw. Um, I was born in 1975, so tail end of Generation X, and low-budget fantasy and sci-fi movies were my jam as a kid like they they really excalibur uh lady hawk escape from new york uh cyborg samurai cop uh i mean if it was if it was made by canon films i watched it um uh life force the terrible slash amazing uh he-man and the masters of the universe film with Dolph lundgren (laughs) um and yet beastmaster uh never came home with me from the video rental store and I can't imagine why because the uh the VHS slipcase art is incredible but it didn't um so I watched it for the first time ever last night and what a strange experience that was um it has all the trappings of your low budget 80s film um bad acting terrible sets lame props um a couple of really nice matte paintings, actually, uh, that I really enjoyed. Uh, lots of, um, how do I put it? Uh, eh, nah, never mind. I'm not going to go on that one. Everyone's very greased up. Okay. That's what I'm trying to say. Everyone's very greased up and, uh, overly tanned. A <laughs> uh, couple of gratuitous, uh, half nudity shots. Um, your, your typical B movie fare. Um, and I'm trying to figure out how I feel about it. Coming to this movie cold as a 45-year-old in 2020, the magic I would have probably felt as a kid was definitely not there. <laughs> um, it was a lot of me groaning and laughing at the at the kind of just the bad production values. And it's funny, it's I feel like it's a movie that suffers in its editing, not in the footage that was shot it just, it doesn't flow real well. Um, there's a beginning, there's an end, and then there's just a bunch of stuff in the middle that's not, uh, terribly well put together. Um, if I had, and if I had a real critique of it, I think just, like, it wasn't very exciting. Um, there's plenty of combat-type stuff and strange encounters, um, but I, I failed to get a sense of any kind of real tension out of them. Like, the, the choreography on the fight scenes is just really bad, um, the monsters, if you want to call them that, are actually the monsters are pretty creepy. Um, I think it's more it was more an issue of uh, uh, Mark Singer's acting ability uh, and his reaction to those monsters that was that was lacking, rather than the monster designs themselves. I think for for a low budget film, they were pretty cool. Um, lots of good bits in here though to grab for your. Uh, your role-playing games uh the couple of cool magic items the the monsters are really neat uh like these like i don't know what you want to call them hairless vampire bird people uh who dissolve their prey between they, they hug them and dissolve their prey like a gelatinous cube that was a really cool effect 
Um, and I think with the limitations of the budget they were working with, they, they, they pulled it off in a way that was good. Uh, I, I enjoyed quite a, a lot. Um, Rip Torn as the, as the evil priest, uh, was, <laughs> I couldn't stop laughing cause I just kept thinking, cause his, his, his name is Max, but I kept hearing King Zed and I kept getting their, their names messed up. And he's also, isn't he Zed in, in men in black <laughs> so um that was a little strange uh, although it was a, a mental flip on my part I, I see here on the wikipedia thing that he was max and zed was the king um the basic premise of how beast the Beastmaster gets his abilities i i won't spoil it if anyone hasn't seen it it'll probably everyone but me has uh, but the, the the way that he goes about getting his his Beastmaster powers was uh was really cool um but overall, pretty boring movie. <laughs> um, I'd have to put it in the same category as like Buckaroo Banzai, uh, another film I didn't see until much later in life that has a lot of things in it that I see in my the, the writer that I work with at work. Having watched it, I see a lot of influence in his writing, in his sci-fi writing from Buckaroo Banzai, but I couldn't actually say Buckaroo Banzai is a good movie. It is a movie that has a lot of funny moments and a lot of weird, quirky stuff to it, uh, but definitely not a good movie. And I, I would put Beastmaster in a similar vein, and the, the fantasy fantasy version of that. Um, but I'm glad I watched it. I, I then went on to watch uh, Deathstalker because it's also on um, on Amazon Prime. And I watched a little bit of Deathstalker too. So we went from 1982 to 1983 to 1987. So uh, of horrible B-movies. And the Deathstalker movies were just <laughs> terrible. Um, I just found them laughable. Um, I don't know. I won't get into those. They were just stupid beyond belief. Um, I don't even think as a kid I would have given them much time. Although there was a lot of gratuitous nudity in them. So I take that back. As, as a young teenager, I would have given them all my time and attention. But <laughs> as, as, a, as a cranky old man now, uh, I don't have, have time for that. Um, yeah, so anyway, thank you for that recommendation, uh, Jason. Um, I, I don't know really what more to say about it. I don't know. Maybe we need to have a, a back and forth here. Um, I'm kind of I'm floundering on 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 where to go with it but it definitely you got me out of my funk and you got me to you got me to make another podcast so um i greatly appreciate that let's see moving on Boop. over on chris mcdowell's uh electricbastionland.com blog um there are a couple of posts from october 2018 called a uh, D combat supercharger um, and it is a a quick and dirty hack for making 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons combat uh, a bit more like the high stakes and stressful combat of Into the Odd and Electric Bastion Land. Um, stressful, exciting, I think, is just really what it is. So uh, I left a bunch of messages about this actually yesterday on the Purple Worm podcast because they were talking about uh, spicing up combat and games uh, recently, and I thought I would just repeat it here on my own podcast as well. Um, so my Glaive game is kicking along, but and we're going to be at it for several months probably before they, they finish up the campaign they're on. But I was talking with one or two of the players about what we might do next, and uh, they've expressed interest in playing some 5th edition, which I am perfectly fine with. They were nice enough to accommodate me when I said, hey, let's try this this BX thing. So uh, I am more than happy to uh, go back to 5e and accommodate them. 
Um, you know, I'm, I'm currently running a fifth edition Reavers of Harkenwald game and enjoying that just fine. But I do have concerns with a group of six people uh, where in a simplified system using my glaive rules, which is basically BX with some t- BX plus knave plus some tweaks and some, a couple of black act things. Um, kind of an old, an old school toolbox, I guess. Uh, as simple as things are in that system, our combat still take a long time. Um, partially because of the number of players, partially because they're not great at um, quickly coming to decisions on what to do. And I, I could, I guess, you know, start using timers to get up to, to push them along, but I, I, I kind of feel like that's a dick move. I don't want to do that. I don't know. Anyway, so I remembered reading this uh, post a while ago and thinking it was interesting. And so this is how it works, basically. Um, so first of all, um, from the blog here, why, why would you do this? Um, because, uh, so in Electric Bastion Land and Into the Odd, you don't roll to hit. You just declare your attack and, and roll damage, uh, which is what makes it so deadly, because the enemies are going to do the same thing. So you really need to uh, consider your tactics and whether or not an engagement is worth it in the first place. Um, fifth edition is very different than that, so... Um, why would you want to do this, though? So missing an attack is lame and is a lame way to spend your turn. Uh, agreed, missing constantly. I've, I've definitely had some of those nights in the 5th edition game that I play in where my cleric has cast spell after spell after spell and either none of them land or the creature saves versus them. And it's essentially like I just wasted some resources and I wasted my turn. And it's, it's boring. Um... And then when you do hit, if you roll really low uh, damage, uh, that's also kind of unsatisfying. I mean, yeah, granted, it's it's part of the randomness of everything, but it, it, I don't know. Yeah. And then combat just takes too long, right? So the way you hack 5th edition combat to make it a little bit more like Into the Odd and, and Electric Bastion Land is you change what the rolls mean. So rolling a natural one is a miss always, no damage. What would normally be a miss, so rolling below your opponent's armor class, turns into a glance. It causes minimum damage for the attack, um, but it can't take the target below one hit point. So what that means is if you have a plus three, if you're a barbarian with plus three three strength and you're rolling and you're fighting with a, a great axe that does d12 damage, the minimum you can roll on that is one plus your strength modifier, four points of damage. So even on a bad roll on a glancing hit, you're still inflicting four hit points worth of of damage. On a normal hit, you're rolling maximum damage. So again, for that Barbarian with a d12 plus three, their maximum damage is going to be 15 points of damage. So if you land a hit on a Goblin, you are going to splatter that thing like a watermelon at a Gallagher show, Um, which to me is awesome. (laughs) And also, I like this idea of the static damage, um, but probably just because I've been running games for so long, I don't usually roll damage for the monsters. I just take the average. So I'm always doing static damage. So this is nothing new for me. Um, now, obviously, this changes a lot of um, this changes a lot of the dynamics of fifth edition combat, or a lot of the, the, the kind of the secondary effects, I guess. Um, so per the hack, uh, things like sneak attack damage, poison, grappling, uh, those you do need to hit and roll as normal. So if you're a rogue trying to sneak attack a goblin and you miss, you inflict your minimum damage, but you don't roll your additional sneak attack damage. But if you land the hit, you do maximum damage plus the roll for the extra 
sneak attack damage. And I suppose you could just say do maximum sneak attack damage, but that feels a little too much, even for me loving this stuff. Um, and then things like uh, breath attacks and other attacks that do not roll to hit, they work normally, so you can still... Um, you're either going to take max damage or you can dodge to cut it in half. Um, although the hack is not that specific, but that's probably how I would roll with it. And things like resistance, vulnerability, and damage res reduction, uh, those also apply as normal. You have to kind of change how resting mechanics work with this, though, uh, due to, to account for the higher amount of damage uh, being dealt at. Um, you kind of need to get more out of your short rests in 5th edition. So instead of rolling hit dice, you can spend your hit dice as normally, but you take the maximum amount of them. So if you have a D10 hit die, you get 10 hit points for every one that you spend, plus whatever your constitution bonus is on a short rest. Um, and a long rest will restore all of your hit dice, which uh, per the normal 5th edition rules, you can only get up to half of your hit dice back on a long rest. So technically it takes four. If you spend all of them in normal 5th edition, it takes 48 hours with two full rests in there to get them all back. Um, and then other types of healing function as normal. Um, I suppose you'd want to do a little tweet. I th I, there's a lot that this doesn't cover because it's just a, a quick and dirty hack. So instantly I'm thinking about clerics and their healing spells. And I think I would probably make that a skill check or an, uh, a roll under your ability roll or set a target number uh, to roll if I want to keep everything roll over. And on a success, you heal the maximum amount. And on, a, I don't want to say on a failure, you on a glance or whatever, you heal the minimum. That seems extremely lame. Maybe healing just works the way healing works, and you get a bonus to it if you get over or something. I don't know. There is something I'll have to work out. Um, let's see. Oh, there's nothing to let's see. That's it. I'm scrolling through the blog thing right now here. Um, magic all works pretty much the way it does normally uh it just kind of gets tweaked a little bit we'll talk about that in a sec but uh so my wife and i so on paper this appeals to me um but i wanted to actually test it out so my wife and i ran a half a dozen um test combats between uh we took her uh she actually plays a, a half orc barbarian uh in the game that i play the ineffectual cleric in and uh so we down-leveled that six-level barbarian to a second-level barbarian and ran a couple of scenarios in a, in a warehouse with uh, three goblins. And it was very interesting. The, the barbarian, she won every single combat encounter. So the little charts in uh, Xanathar's Guide that tell you, you know, how many goblins or how many half-CR creatures your, your, your level two character is equivalent of, I don't think that's quite accurate. It's definitely uh, weighed in the favors player, the, the, the player's favor. Um, although it could also just be the barbarian. They do put out stupid amounts of damage, uh, especially with this system. Um, but what changed was uh, what it cost her in terms of hit points in order to get through that encounter. And if you were running, uh, and obviously an adventure where there's gonna be several encounters, this is gonna become really important. And so suddenly, as we as we did more and more of the mock combat, she was thinking more tactically, thinking more about um, tilting the odds more and more in her favor. So the first combat, she kicked in the door, and she just ran at the goblins and took them out. But she herself was uh, reduced to like twenty five percent of her of her starting hit points. Um, not really in a good place to then kick in the next door and take on more goblins or something like that. 
And she said she didn't want to waste a rage when I suggested it. She didn't want to waste a rage on a couple of goblins, uh, which is an interesting kind of... I thought that was an interesting comment. Yeah, rages are a limited resource, so you do want to kind of hold on to them for more major engagements, but with this hack, that that kind of changes. You probably want to prioritize using it rather than holding on to it for that clutch moment where it might be super useful you probably want to front load and make it your default action to use those rages um so she did that the next time and and fared much better um and then she eventually like scouted the the warehouse found out that there was like a catwalk up on the second story and windows up there so she climbed up the outside of the building and you know we did the normal stealth and perception checks and she managed to position herself so that she had a uh, had a surprise round on the goblins and was jumping down on them from the catwalk so she had advantage on her first uh, her first attack, although uh, maybe you get advantage anyway on a surprise round, I'm, I'm not sure I don't have the rules in front of me um, but she did everything she could to uh, to tip the scales in her favor and it really turned combat into it made it feel a lot more like our BX game where the characters were a lot more fragile and so they really considered every encounter carefully in a way that we don't do either us as players in our 5th edition game or as my players do in the 5th edition game I'm running don't do that because they have such a a reserve pool of hit points that um, they sort of protect you from unwise choices to a degree yeah sure you can still kill people in 5th edition and or at least drop them to, to zero uh, if you're not able to outright kill them. Um, and I do see that happen regularly in our games, but, um, yeah. So it just, it really, it really, uh, made it a lot more tense and a lot more exciting. I thought, uh, my wife's comment on it was that she didn't like exact, she didn't think she liked how fast it was. Um, she is, uh, she's, she likes the combat. She loves combat. Um, she's also the strongest role player in the game I run and in the game that we play in together. So she's kind of a, a renaissance woman of role playing. She loves kicking doors and kill monsters, but she's also the one who wants to uh, interrogate all the NPCs and find out all the information and whatnot. She's, 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 she's all in. Um, but she looks forward to the kind of the, she enjoys the combat in our fifth edition games more than the combats in our glaive games um, because it's a lot of uh, um, picking the right move at the right time and then positioning and stuff like that and she just really enjoys that aspect to it in fact in our the game where she plays this half orc um, her old uh, she's an old magic the gathering player uh, maybe she hasn't played in probably like 20 years but uh, back in the day when it was new um, she was very much into that kind of gameplay and while I run my cleric off of my iPad in D&D Beyond because I can't be bothered doing all the math and keeping track of all the spell slots and all that, she is uh, very analog, has the papers out in front of her, and has all these little uh, different colored index cards and note cards that she has made up to track her rages and other abilities that she has. And then like she's playing magic, when she uses one of them, she will turn the card to indicate to her that that's, you know, that resource has been used up and, and needs to get recharged somehow. Um, and she really enjoys that kind of stuff. Um, but I think there's two things at play here. One, 
normally she's playing with five other players. So as fast as these little combat scenarios that we ran went, um, they would never go that fast with the main group because it's, you'd, you're still going to wait for five people to figure out what they're doing. Uh, and, and hopefully there's some goblins left for you at the end, I guess. Um, but also, if you can move quickly through things like this, it keeps the game moving and if you enjoy the combat encounters and she also really enjoys all the puzzles and, and stuff as well you can get to more of that in one game in one session and i don't think you're losing anything um i, I still feel like i have to sell her on that idea but we shall see so i am hoping when we uh transition from our glaive game to our fifth edition game probably some months down the road now that i'll be able to uh convince the group to at least give this style of combat a go i think it's really great um and it was it was i don't know it was high energy it was exciting and yeah and so let's take a look at magic for a second here let me pause Boop. so the hack for fifth edition magic and i promise this will be much faster than the uh previous segment because we didn't uh test any of this i'm just kind of still absorbing it it's it's a lot uh it's a lot less. It's a lot less, uh, I don't know, it's less clean? I don't know. Um, so basically, to supercharge your, your spells in 5e the way we just did with combat. So any spell that allows a save to completely negate its effect now automatically succeeds. So Tasha's Hideous Laughter, for example, uh, it just works. Um, although, I don't know that I 100% like that. Uh, I'll come back to that. Uh, if there's a complication, typically, typically something that gives the target advantage on their saves... The target gets to make their save as normal. And I'm, I'm just reading off McDowell's blog here. Um, I'll put links to all this in the show notes. And then saves that allow a target to shake off an effect afterwards, uh, those are applied as normal. So if you're petrified or stunned or whatever, you still get your, your saving roll every round. Which I don't love about 5th edition, but I, I, I can see keeping that in. Um, it goes on to say that cantrips are the real danger here, but... He doesn't think it would be a massive issue at the table. Uh, The mild option is to keep cantrips as they are, but (laughs) he can't bring himself to recommend that. I like that. Um, And if there's a concern that the boosts in spellcasting power are too powerful, remember that it also works for enemy casters. Uh, So some examples here. Charm person now automatically charms somebody as long as they're not already hostile towards you. Kind of like original charm, right? Um... The most interesting payoff here is that the target still knows they were charmed by you, so you've got to brace yourself for the consequences uh, of charming powerful individuals. Uh, fear still works, uh, because fear works as normal. The target still gets their save to shake it off when they get to safety, after which they're presumably coming for you. Acid splash, d6 damage to two nearby targets isn't all that bad. Smart opponents will break formation. Um, unaffected spell examples, sleep. So sleep is based off of hit points, so no change there. Uh, Grease is an interesting one. Um, It usually requires a deck save for everyone passing uh, through the area you cast uh, Grease on. And Chris says he'd he'd leave it untouched. Um, Even if nobody falls, your Grease spell has had some impact on the world. Uh, Finger of Death, for cases like this where the save is to avoid half the damage, just leave it as is. It's a bit weird when your other spells cause auto damage but this whole thing was going to be screwy anyway yeah i would definitely have to play around with magic um to make it jive a little bit better but i feel like that's something you would do on a case-by-case basis rather than trying to overhaul the entire system like in the case of the barbarian 
it's now more important that they use their rages. And those things, I think, per the book, recharge after a long rest. Well, I, w- I would just change that to say they recharge after a short rest. It's a core mechanic of the class. I, I don't see being overly stingy with them, uh, especially if you're amping up the lethality of combat. Um, and I think if you took spells on a, on a case-by-case basis, you could pretty easily work out rules for them individually. And it's not like once you get past character creation, it's not like you are getting dozens of new spells to hack every single session that you play. You know, once per level, they get a couple new ones, and it's not a whole lot of work, I I don't think. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to giving this a go. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I want to follow up on before I call it quits. I suppose one last thing you could do uh, with magic users. With... A spell like Magic Missile that automatically hits, that suddenly becomes a lot more powerful. D4s are terrible because you've got a 25% chance of rolling a 1, but if you're going to get the 4 points of damage every time you hit, and you're going to hit every time because you don't roll for it, I feel like that spell might need a little tweaking. And I think in general, as long as a direct damage spell is something that you have to roll to hit the target with, then you're probably okay. Um... But if they're not, uh, you could turn a lot of magic into kind of an opposed role system if you wanted to. Um, that might work just fine. Or have just have the spellcaster roll to see if everything goes off. I'm not normally a fan of that. That's a, I, know, I know it's something that Professor Dungeon Master over on Dungeon Craft um, does in his game. The, the mages always have to roll because there's always a chance for a critical failure or critical, critical success. Um, and his philosophy is that if the fighter has to roll every round to swing his sword, the mage has to roll every time they cast a spell. But I also feel like maybe that's a little out of line with the thinking of how most versions of D&D are set up because the fighter can swing his sword infinitely and the spellcaster has a very finite number of spells to cast. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm going to I'm gonna have to chew on that for a while. So maybe I'll have something to talk about next time I come back. Uh, if I can work some of it out or, or run some examples. But I hope that was interesting. Um, if anyone gives this a try before I get to, I'd love to hear how it goes. I think, you know, for you guys who are who are uh, running 5th edition or who have kind of given up on 5th edition um, but have played it, go back and do a couple of uh, little dry run combats with, uh, with, this, uh, with this technique. I, I found it to be a lot of fun. And it really turned the game into something a lot more energetic and um, uh, intense uh, than what I'm used to in my in a normal 5e game. So you might have uh, similar results, or maybe not. Um, I'd love to hear. So call in, leave me a voice message, and I'll uh, talk to y'all later. Lonely adventurer out. Back on June 28th, when I first started trying to record this podcast, <laughs> um, I did a long and bad book review of a, a trilogy called The Deeds of Paxenarian by Elizabeth Moon. Um, it's not a book that I hear discussed very often. Um, I have several friends who are in kind of fantasy and sci-fi book clubs, and they read all kinds of genre books, and they'd never heard of them. Um, but I've since recommended to them and they've all really enjoyed it so you might as well uh essentially it is a low fantasy story of a young girl who runs away from home becomes a soldier and eventually by the end of it becomes a paladin in a very traditional kind of D way so it is full of a lot of D tropes 
um, not even tropes, it's full of a lot of D&D, <laughs> excuse me, uh, a good chunk of the second book is the village of Hamlet, uh, although the author did try to deny this at some point, I don't know if she ever finally admitted it was, um, but probably not for copyright reasons, but, uh, it is literally the village of Hamlet, slightly reskinned, but not very much, um, and the moat house and all of that jazz, um, she ends up working with the, uh, I think there's like a sixth level assassin or thief in town. Um, and I just really loved it. I, I loved it more because at the time as a kid reading it, I had no idea what the village of Hamlet was. I didn't know Dungeons and Dragons at the time. Um, and having read Hamlet maybe a year ago for the first time ever, um, it was, I found it really enjoyable to recognize all of the things from the book. And I imagine it goes in the opposite direction as well. If you're familiar with the module, it might be a lot of fun to recognize a lot of the things uh, from the module in in the story. Um, yeah, so that's it. No book review, really. Just check it out. Deeds of Paxanarian by Elizabeth Moon. Um, if you're a sci-fi reader, too, she's also got a lot of light uh, sci-fi uh, books. I think she's more known for her sci-fi stuff. She started doing uh, The Planet Pirates, I think it was, with uh, Anne McCaffrey. And then that spiraled out into several little series that she wrote that I believe are all happening in roughly the same universe, uh, or perhaps parallel versions of the same universe with different characters. Um, I loved, loved those as a kid. Um, couldn't tell you if they stand the test of time, though. I haven't read them in 20 years, but uh, yeah. So that's that. <laughs>